Well, we are in this series right now. We are looking at the book of Philippians. The series is called In Pursuit. Uh, Philippians is one of the prison letters that Paul wrote. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Philemon. Uh, so written or so described because they were written by the Apostle Paul uh, when he was incarcerated. And three of those letters were written to churches that Paul founded, he planted during his second missionary journey. Now, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Dick Foth was preaching. I love it when he preaches. He has more stories than any person that I know. And uh, how many were here two weeks ago? And you heard that message, and it was praying for you, praying for you, a great overview of the book, and then some practical and inspirational teaching about prayer. By the way, you can get online at timberlinechurch.org and catch up with those messages. Last weekend, how many were here last weekend? Raise your hand. Pastor Darry uh, was talking about being alive and well, a really uh, powerful, challenging message about the Apostle Paul's perspective on life and death, really challenging stuff. And then uh, this week, it, it, it's me. How many, are, how many of you are here? Just raise your Okay. <laughs> Just checking. And... Um, this week, the title sounds like a song from the Frozen movie, Let It Go. Let it go. That was pathetic, people. Let It Go is the title this week. And we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, 27 through 2, 11. And included in this reading is what's called the Kenosis Hymn. Have you ever wondered what songs the early church sang? Well, many scholars believe that contained in this passage is the Kenotic Hymn, a song that the early church sang that the Apostle Paul used and quoted from as he wrote to the church in Philippi. I'll let you know when we get to that. So here's what he says. Above all... You must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We're in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And here it's believed is the beginning of that hymn, that song that Paul was quoting. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the place of high honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." I love living in northern Colorado. How many of you would agree with me that we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world? Any agreement? Okay, this is going to be an interesting morning. I can, I can tell, yeah. Yeah, it's great living here. Sunshine, 300 days a year, they say. I researched it. Apparently includes cloudy days, partial cloudy days as well. So not quite as advertised, but 300 days of the year. I love the wildlife. I love the wildlife. 4.30 this morning, I was awakened. We, we have a ring camera on our front door. How many, how many know what I'm talking about? Just raise your hand even if you don't. I don't care. And... Um, and uh, we've got this ring camera, and Alexa said, there is motion at your front door. So uh, I got up, uh, ready to intimidate any passing villains, and, and discovered that our house was like surrounded by elk. There were three elk, like on our porch, peering into uh, our house. And I thought, oh, how beautiful. They pooped everywhere. So rude. I love it. I love living at altitude. I love living at 4,700 feet. It's great. It's athletically efficient. I can scratch my head and get a workout. I love that. I love the snow. I love the snow. But are you with me? I've had enough. Enough already. And I love shopping in Santerra, except for the roundabouts. You people don't know how to use the roundabout. <sighs> I don't know what it's like in traditions, but this is a weird group this morning, let me tell you. They just applauded roundabouts. Hey, roundabouts. I love living here. 2,000 years ago, if you met a citizen of Philippi and you said to them, what do you love about living in Philippi? They, they might have said, well, we, we love it because it's a prosperous city. And indeed, it was. They had a beautiful Roman forum in Philippi. Uh, they had an enlarged theater so that they could have full-on Roman games. And so it was a beautiful city. There was much to love. But I think if you met a citizen of Philippi, they'd probably say that what we love the most is that we are a colony of Rome, and that makes us Roman citizens, protected by Roman law. Octavian, who later became the Emperor Augustus, won a tremendous victory on the plains of Philippi, and to celebrate that, he made Philippi a colony of Rome. They even called it Little Rome. They were so proud that they were... Roman citizens. And so the Apostle Paul in this letter plays on this idea of the value of citizenship. He uses an unusual Greek word, polituma, from which we get our word politics or political. And he's playing on the truth that they are proud of their Roman citizenship, but he's saying, no, actually, 
What's more important is that you are truly citizens of the kingdom of God. And he uses that idea in the passage that I've just read. And then later in chapter 3 and verse 20, he plays on the same notion again. He says our citizenship is in heaven. And for Paul, this was a priority. Last weekend, Pastor Darry gave us the challenging question. What's our priority? What matters most? And the Apostle Paul here in verse 27, chapter 1, he says, above all, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Karl Barth commentating on this. He says it's as if the Apostle Paul is raising a single finger and saying, look, above all, the word here means this one thing and only. Live as citizens. And then again, jumping into chapter 3, the Apostle Paul uses this idea of priority. He says, this one thing I do, pressing forward. He's saying this citizenship piece, it's a matter of priority. And these are not just words, because he lived it out. He lived it out. Paul was more concerned about the advancement of the gospel than he was about the fact that he was in prison. He was more concerned that Christ was being preached rather than being worried about the fact that those who preached it, some of them were really against Paul. He was more concerned that Christ be magnified than he was about living or dying. This was his priority. I've said it many times here at Timberline. Christianity makes a terrible hobby. The kingdom has to be our priority. Kay and I have recently made a decision, which I'm, uh, I'm excited to announce this morning. Uh, for years, we've lived in America and enjoyed that as resident aliens, green card holders. They're blue, but you've always called it green, and that's what freedom's about. Uh, but we've just recently decided to apply to become American citizens, and so we are going to... Yeah. <laughs> I'm just aware that I've announced that. You might write in now. And, uh, why are we doing that? Well, it means we, I won't have to hide on the 4th of July. <laughs> but we love this country. Somebody said to me last night, uh, does that mean you'll have dual citizenship now, British and American? And the answer is no, I'll have triple citizenship. Triple Two secondary citizenships and one primary. You see, my secondary citizenships will be British, because I was born there, and you can't lose your citizenship. And then if they have me, um, American. And so uh, my secondary citizenships will be British and American. But let me tell you what my primary citizenship will always be. It will always be a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's the priority. And let me just say something that might be a little bit controversial, but I think you're the group to tell it to. Sometimes we get it a bit mixed up, and we're more British or we're more American than we are Christian. And when we get the citizenship messed up, we get ourselves into conflict, because sometimes being a good American citizen or a good British citizen is not the same as being a good kingdom citizen, because sometimes our leaders get it wrong. Sometimes we might have to speak out and be in conflict with the system. Whenever we become primarily American and British rather than kingdom, we are messed up, people. We are citizens of the kingdom. Why are you clapping again? But I'm kind of liking it, so keep it going. That's all. No, just kidding, just kidding. 
I'm getting a bit excited this morning. It's what happens when you become an American, baby. Someone said to me last night, are you going to change your accent now? <laughs> yes, sir, Bob. <laughs> this is about priority, but it's also about purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is not about me and you living nicer little lives. This is about nothing less than us living as citizens of the kingdom so that we can show the world how to live. Bill Emmett, the editor of The Economist, in his book, The Fate of the West, he said the state is demoralized, deflating, demographically challenged, divided, disintegrating, dysfunctional, and declining. Now, you may agree with that. You may not, but whatever the analysis, we're living in a broken world. And God's solution to that, and we're going to consider this more next weekend, is to have ordinary people, God only uses ordinary people because nothing else is available. Ordinary people, flawed, messed up, under construction, gradually transformed, living as citizens of the kingdom and showing the world, hey, this is what life looks like when you live it hand in hand with God. Nothing less than that is the imperative that sits upon us individually and corporately. So what does that actually look like? And I'm looking around here and some of you are saying, Pastor Jeff, you've been preaching for a while and we haven't even got to the first point. <laughs> Fear not, little flock. <laughs> first of all, let's let go of fear that stalks us. Let's let go of fear that stalks us. The apostle says, don't be intimidated in any way. Verse 28. Don't be intimidated in any way. Let's, let's pan the camera back because the church in Philippi and in wider Macedonia was experiencing widespread persecution. So writing to the church in Corinth in the same area, Paul talks about affliction and extreme poverty, 2 Corinthians 8.2. Much affliction, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. Persecution and affliction, 2 Thessalonians 1.4. So they are suffering because they follow Jesus. And Paul says, don't be afraid. And the word used here is the word used for startling horses into a stampede. He says... Don't be panicked. Don't just, just keep your head. You're a citizen of heaven. God's in control. Don't live fearfully. Isn't it true that we are a fearful culture? And I struggle to even preach this because I, I, I can be pretty good at being afraid. Uh, are you like me? You, 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 get a little, you get an ache or a pain and suddenly it's the worst possible thing. Then you get on the internet and diagnose yourself. You're dead, baby. It's all over. And often fear is an act of the imagination that often leads us to the wrong conclusions. Uh, a recent survey was done amongst people asking them about their fears, and then they went back to them 
years later and said, how many of those fears came to pass? 85% of those who were surveyed worried about things that never happened. Uh, of the 15% where it did happen, 79% of those interviewed said that they handled those difficulties better than they expected and learned something from the experience. Basically, 97% of what we worry about is a fearful mind punishing us with exaggerations and misconceptions. And when we're afraid, we tune in to our own speculative imaginations. And how many know that is particularly true during the middle of the night when a disembodied voice says, there is motion at your front door? <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, said most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves, speaking scripture to ourselves. And let's pause for a moment and realize that Paul was talking about a persecuted church here. Let's realize, too, that that's still happening. Did you know that one in nine Christians around the world today are either being persecuted against or discriminated against? Just a few days ago, the Reverend Lawan Andimi, a Nigerian Christian leader, was kidnapped by Boko Haram. Uh, he filmed a video after he was kidnapped on July the 3rd. I watched the video yesterday. He's seated in front of a black flag, ISIS flag. He said, don't cry. Don't worry. But thank God for everything. A few days later, they executed him. And a British tabloid newspaper put a headline over his farewell video. And it said, Pastor pleads for his life. That made me so mad. Because that's the thing he didn't do. He didn't beg for his life. He sat there with a quiet confidence in God. In February 2015, ISIS executed 21 Christians on a beach in Libya. And by the way, none of this should be used to, to discriminate against Muslim friends who've got nothing to do with extremism. Millions of them peace-loving. And sometimes information like this can be used to fuel anger, which is inappropriate. But they marched them out onto the beach. And I'll choose my words carefully because of younger ears here. But dressed in orange jumpsuits, they executed them. And every one of them, their last words they spoke before they were killed, were simply Lord Jesus Christ. Even Berge, bishop in Norway during the Nazi invasion in the Second World War, the Gestapo showed up at his church and insisted that he insert the politics of National Socialism into the liturgy, and he refused. And they said, we will have you shot if you don't obey. And he said, go ahead! Shoot me, then what you gonna do? I'm intimidated by these stories. Because I'm not there. And they're not all bad. Persecution isn't just bad. In Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation in the world, where persecution against Christians is routine, there are 26 million Christians compared with 24 million in Canada. The church is thriving. Did you know that it's estimated that in 2040, the country in this world that will have the largest Christian population is not America or Britain. It's China. 
And I don't want to pray for persecution just to sort us all out. I don't want that. But what I do want is to live a life that is not intimidated. A friend of mine was telling me recently he's learning to stare down the worst of his fears, consider the worst possibility, and then go in prayer to God with that. I think Paul was doing that. He was facing life or death. He wasn't pretending there wouldn't be any problems, but he's saying, don't be afraid. Secondly, let's let go of independence that isolates us. Independence that isolates us. Paul says, I know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose. And then in verse 30, we are in this struggle together. We had our, our kids and grandkids out for Christmas, and uh, we had a wonderful time. And one of the best parts of it was the jigsaw puzzle. I've discovered the solution to world peace. I need a Nobel Peace Prize. We need to give the world politicians a jigsaw puzzle. That's what it's going to take. 20,000 pieces, a penguin. <laughs> and you know what happened? We gathered around the table, and for three or four days, we pulled our different insights. Rather than in competition, we collaborated in a common goal to create the penguin. And that's what fellowship is. That's why we need church. That's why we need not just church, but participating in church. Did you know that the word fellowship is used 19 times in the New Testament? And every time, it's a doing word. Contributing, serving, participation. The danger with a church like Timberline is that you can just come and sit here and go. But we'll never experience the richness of fellowship unless we graduate beyond that. And if we are going to stand in these days, we need to recognize our need of each other and maybe, maybe go deeper. Join a small group. Participate. Get rid of, let go of the independence that isolates us. Thirdly, let's let go of false expectations that create disappointment. False expectations that create disappointment. Paul says, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. What? That's one privilege I don't want. And he knew all about it. It's been said he spent about 25% of his time in prison. A brief lockup in Philippi. Two years incarceration in Caesarea. Two years in Rome. And let me tell you this. Being imprisoned... In a Roman prison, Paul spent sometimes in a direct prison, sometimes under house arrest. But in a Roman prison, here's how you started your sentence. They'd strip you naked, they'd whip you and beat you. Humiliating, painful, bloody. Your wounds would go untreated. You'd be in painful leg or wrist chains. You'd be cold. That's why Paul asked for a cloak. Most cells were dark like the one Paul and Silas inhabited in Philippi. Lack of water, cramped quarters, sickening stench from the few toilets, male and female prisoners together, sexual immorality and abuse, prison food poor, and often you had to provide your own food from outside sources. 
Anyone who thinks that being a Christian is easy has never read this. But sometimes we can get disappointed with God because life isn't just endless 300 plus days of sunshine. And we get mad with him for not giving us what he never promised to give us. And sometimes we can get mad because God answered a prayer in one way here, but he's not answering that same prayer now in this season of our lives. So let me illustrate that. The Apostle Paul had been in Philippi and in prison there. Look at what happened. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All, at once, all the prison doors flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Here's what I want you to see. When Paul had been in prison before, there was an earthquake and a jailbreak. But now he's in Rome. If I was him, I'd be going, God, any chance of another earthquake? How about these doors opening? How about these chains falling off? But God did it then, but he didn't do it then and we can get mad when that happened. I've often talked about my father here and him coming to Christ here in America. What I don't think I've shared with you, maybe I have, is what happened two weeks before he came to America. My dad only came to the States one time. He loved it. <laughs> they took us hunting. You could hear the deer laughing in the woods. Two weeks before my dad, my mum and dad came, my mum a Christian, my dad not. I went to a prayer meeting in Portland, Oregon, and we spent an hour praying for our family members. And during that hour, five minutes in actually, the Lord gave me like a vision, a picture of my dad with a Bible open in his hand and a tear running down his face. And I'm like, Wow, been hoping to lead my dad to the Lord for 20 years plus, and now what's going on? I came to America, and on the last Sunday, they were in the States. My dad, during the announcements, decided he wanted to become a Christian. He's the only man in the history of the entire Christian church who became a Christian during the announcements. <laughs> he actually came forward. I had to go forward with him to the front. During the, the pastor hadn't even given an altar call, and we're walking down the front, and the pastor's probably thinking, are they volunteering to lead women as a glow? What's, what's going on? My dad became a Christian that morning, and that night, told you about this, I was preaching somewhere, and he and my mum were sitting up in the balcony, and there were a thousand people there, and I said, look up there, that's my daddy, he became a Christian this morning, and a thousand people stood up and clapped and cheered, and my dad waved like the queen, it was awesome. Great. And the next night we went out for a meal and I bought, we bought him a Bible. And uh, I said, Dad, in celebration of you becoming a Christ follower, here is a Bible for you. 
And I handed it to him. And he opened the Bible. And a tear ran down his face. By the way, everybody, Jesus really is alive, you know. I said Jesus really is alive, you know. You know that, don't you, right? Yeah. But you see, there have been other situations where I've prayed for loved ones, and I really want to see the picture and the Bible and the tear, and I'm going, where's the earthquake? Sometimes we have to let go of disappointment, anger with God about what he's not given us even though he didn't promise to give it to us. And let go of disappointment because God is not a vending machine and sometimes he does this and sometimes he does something different and that's when you have to trust him. And I speak to you as a pastor, I look around this room and I know that there are people battling long-term challenges here and God forbid that you would think that I would make light of them. I do not, but I celebrate your trust. And hemmed in as you are with question marks and an aching heart, let's keep trusting him and let go of false expectations that create disappointment. Well, the last thing is this. Let's let go of self-obsession that is always a temptation. Self-obsession that's always a temptation. Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. We're kind of self-obsessed, aren't we? We're a selfie culture about self-improvement, about being yourself. Brother Roger, of Taze said, Christ does not say, be yourself. He says, be with me. Pastor Darius spoke last week about being more others oriented. And I'm, I'm challenged about this. Are we, how much does self drive, well, me? Are you that person who when you meet others, you spend 20 minutes talking about yourself? And then you say, enough of me. What do you think about me? <laughs> what about the way you spend your money or your headspace or your time? Or fretting about what others think of us. Writing for New Yorker magazine, Melissa Dahl said this, nerves have a way of making you fold into yourself, obsessing over each awkward thing you've said or done in front of someone you're trying to impress. You're chatting away but you're also very much focused on you, trying to figure out the impression you're leaving. Meanwhile, you've missed the last five minutes of the conversation, which makes it highly likely that the impression you're leaving is that you're kind of a jerk. Are we self-obsessed? Ethel Barrett said, we'd worry less about what others think of us if we realized how seldom they do. And as I come draw to the end of this message I've got to tell you that this week in studying, praying, preparing I've come to the conclusion that a lot of the first three points could be resolved by the fourth point in this message you see sometimes because I'm so preoccupied with myself that's why I allow fear 
to stalk me. The Apostle Paul kind of had a a throwaway attitude to himself. And, and And I'm not there. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's not going to waste time over being afraid. And, and I, want, I want to say it again, I'm not there. I hear him say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I'm like, good for you, buddy. But I'm not there. I don't want to die. You say, don't you want to see Jesus? Yeah, but not right now. And how much of self stokes fear? And self can drive us to independence because we, we don't want to pay the price for fellowship because it means messing with people. People can be so irritating. <laughs> yeah. You've been part of Timberline for six months and nothing about it has irritated you yet. You're probably clinically dead. <laughs> self can drive us to independence. It's, it's just about me. It's just about me. I like, to be people with, I like to be with people that I like. Well, isn't that great? And what about false expectations when we're disappointed with God? A lot of that's about self. You didn't do it for me. What about moi? Now, I, I've got to tell you this. I have no idea. I have no idea how to sort this self-obsession stuff out. I just want to be aware of it. And it seems to me to be impossible to let loose or take a a, a lessening grip on self. But I, I know this, for with God, all things are possible. And as we walk with him, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, And as we refuse to allow relationships to be eroded or destroyed because of self-obsession, God can help us. Christianity is not about just imitating Jesus. C.S. Lewis taught that we are like tin men. No, rather Christianity is about being daily filled with the Holy Spirit who gradually, slowly, transforms us into the image of Christ. Let's let go of self-obsession that is always a temptation. All right, church, let's pray together. Father, thank you because we are not alone. Thank you that we are not alone in trying to follow a set of principles, gritting our teeth, doing our best. We do have to choose. We do have to decide. But we thank you that it is by the work of your Holy Spirit in us that we can be transformed to be more effective citizens of the kingdom. We pray for each other here today, especially for those who are afraid, who wake up in the night sweating, anxious, cowed below the shadow of a Goliath that threatens them. We pray for those who are waiting for test results, who are fearful for the marriage, who are anxious for the business. And fear is pushing them around. 
Only you can do it, Lord. Be close to them. Lift their heads. Fill their hearts with hope and faith. Intervene. Take us deeper in you, we pray. Help us to gather around the, the kingdom jigsaw. Help us not to be spectators, but to go deeper. We stand firm together. We pause in this prayer to even consider what it might mean for us to go deeper, not just with you, but in our fellowship with each other. For any, Lord, who are angry with you because of false expectations, may they know that they can bring their anger in prayer, that a clenched fist can be like a folded hand in prayer if it's expressed sincerely. For those who genuinely are disappointed but are hanging on, trusting you, would you grant them strength? And then this business of self, Lord, which is overwhelming. We, sometimes we don't know the way forward in terms of being less self-centered. But again, we ask you to show us. Show us when we're staining our friendships, our marriages, with self-obsession. Show us. Finally, Lord, it would be wrong for us to conclude this prayer without looking beyond ourselves as we've been thinking about one in nine Christian believers around the world today who suffer in some way because of following Christ. And so we enjoin our prayers, especially for your church in Nigeria. We've lost a key leader at this time. We pray for his family, his children, his wife. Pray for those who huddle together to grieve. We pray for your church in China where millions are turning to Christ despite opposition. In Pakistan, in North Korea. We realize, Lord, that right as we are here, having arrived here today at Timberline without fear of a police interception, without fear of incarceration because we've come to worship, while we thank you for our freedom, may we be ready to lift our voices on behalf of those who have no voice. I'd like us to have a few seconds before we move on, just for each one of us to whisper in our hearts our own prayer, whatever you'd like to say to God right now in response to all of this. So thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayer. We give you thanks that Christ is alive. In Jesus' name, everyone said, 
And they said it with a bit more enthusiasm. Amen. Amen.